Alpha and Omega, the story we find ourselves in. Chapter 14b, Christ's ministry, God's true king manifests his kingdom, part two. Jesus had begun his ministry in Galilee by announcing the breaking in of the kingdom of God, revealing and giving evidence of it with mighty works and gathering a new kingdom community to himself. So having gathered a people, Jesus now taught his kingdom community the truths and ways of God's kingdom through sermons, parables, I am statements, and modeling. A significant portion of the content of the Gospels records Jesus' teaching of his disciples. When people heard Jesus, it was unlike anything they had ever heard because he did not merely quote the teachings of great rabbis. Rather, he spoke as one who had authority and who knew God deeply and personally. So the way he taught was through sermons, like the Sermon on the Mount, which was Jesus' primary teaching on the distinctive character, attitudes, and behavior of God's kingdom people. It was a reminder of Israel's covenant calling to live as a blessed people who blessed others. It cut past the fog of centuries of religious traditions and teachings to reveal the heart of the life God described in the law. So you find Jesus saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, always drawing a little deeper. The kingdom life was to be a joyful pursuit of righteousness, a life that matched God's character and his standard of what was perfectly good, true, and right. Kingdom people would live out a radically different vision of life that seamlessly uh, wove together daily life, relationships, things like lust and anger and oaths and conflict with enemies and anxiety and money and priorities, and the spiritual life, things like prayer and fasting and charitable giving and forgiveness, all of that under the king who was a good heavenly father. Jesus was very clear that this would be a difficult life that only a few would pursue, but equally insistent that a life built on believing and living the way of the kingdom was the only way to build a life that would last. Most of Jesus' teaching did not take place in formal settings or presentations, but in conversations and in response to everyday circumstances. His favorite teaching method was the use of parables. Parables were brief, everyday stories that shed light on some truth about God, His ways, and kingdom. Parables were drawn from the daily life and culture of ordinary people. It made Jesus' teaching accessible to everyone so that it was said that he did not speak to them without a parable. Parables often engaged the heart by means of the imagination, and response to them was a way of gauging the spiritual receptivity of a person. So some examples of parables include the parable of the soils, which compared four kinds of soils on which a farmer would scatter seed to four kinds of hearts receiving the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus said this parable was key to understanding all of the parables. There were the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast, which pictured the way the kingdom works in the world. In the right environment, the potential impact of kingdom realities far outweighs their initial appearance. So a small seed results in a large tree, and the small bit of yeast causes the bread to rise. The parable of the talents described the judgment that all people would face for their stewardship of the life God has given. Faithfulness leads to the master's approval and reward to enjoy with him. Unfaithfulness calls for the master's wrath and banishment from his presence. And then the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son picture the worth of a single human life apart from God. 
the heart of God that motivates a search for them and the celebration in heaven when what was lost is restored or is meant to be. These three parables were told in response to religious leaders who grumbled about Jesus' consistent welcome of sinners. The end of the final story of the prodigal son turned the parables back on the religious leaders with the description of the older son's bitter, joyless, and selfish reaction to his brother's homecoming as contrasted to the father's great joy that his son was finally home. In his gospel, John recorded a series of seven I am statements, which were used by Jesus to teach his identity, his promises, and purpose. With this, Jesus explicitly laid claim to the very name that God had given Moses as his personal name. Remember, he said before Abraham was, I am. This was Jesus' way of affirming that while being fully man, he was fully God. This claim more than any other caused the Jewish leaders to charge Jesus with blasphemy that resulted in his crucifixion. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door the good shepherd, the resurrection, the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine. Finally, so much of Jesus' teaching happened through modeling in response to conversations and circumstances in which Jesus clearly demonstrated the heart and ways of God. For instance, Jesus welcomed the children to demonstrate the faith and heart attitude of kingdom people. Once when the disciples tried to shoo children away from Jesus, because they thought these weren't as important, he picked up a young child nearby and reminded the disciples that the kingdom was built on people with childlike hearts of trust in God. Then Jesus showed mercy to an adulterous woman when the religious leaders brought her to him in the temple and demanded that he pass judgment on her. Jesus deflected attention from her by kneeling to ride on the ground. Then he stood and made one piercing statement, let him without sin among you Be the first to throw a stone. The next thing you heard were the thud of rocks hitting the ground. And they all walked away one by one. And when no one threw the stone, he assured the woman of mercy and called her to holiness. He said, go and sin no more. Jesus was always teaching his disciples how to live his way. As Jesus' reputation grew because of his teaching and miracles, the crowds following him also grew. That caught the attention of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, who began sending delegations all the way north to Galilee to observe and investigate this new kingdom movement. So Jesus encountered rising opposition to his kingdom mission from the Jewish religious leaders, who saw him breaking their traditions and making bold claims about the kingdom and about being God's son. Now, see, the basic concern of the Pharisees was to guard the law of God in order to maintain a pure Israel, unpolluted by any compromise with the surrounding Roman culture. That's why they developed hundreds of laws in addition to their written law of Moses. There were food laws and Sabbath-keeping laws and morally acceptable relationship laws. All of that was meant to draw a boundary between faithful Jews and the world until the kingdom came. And when the kingdom came, the Messiah will lead a sudden, forcible, and decisive overthrow of the pagan Roman Empire so that Israel will be delivered from their oppressor. Well, as Jesus lived that, then he came, proclaiming the kingdom. So far, so good. But early in his ministry, Jesus began to say and do things that challenged the Pharisees' view of God and the kingdom. 
He ate meals and engaged in conversation with tax collectors and sinners, people unqualified to even enter the temple. His disciples did not observe either ritual fasts or ritual washings before meals. They plucked kernels from wheat wheat stalks to eat as they passed through fields on the Sabbath. The Pharisees considered that to be labor, which violated the no work on the Sabbath principle. In the same way, when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, the leaders actually said, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Well, on the Sabbath day, very early, the Pharisees began plotting how to destroy him. Jesus' approach to the kingdom of God was upside down to all the Jewish leaders had believed and taught for years. He challenged all their traditions. His words and miracles captured the attention of the common people, so the leaders lost influence. They would not rejoice in the wonderful things Jesus did for people and even asserted that the only reason he could do miracles was because he was in a league with Satan himself. The tension increased when Jesus made his disagreement with them even more open, calling them whitewashed tombs full of maggoty bones. Jesus was not one to mince words. He openly claimed to be God's son and used Messiah language to describe what he was doing. The Gospels record that the Jewish leaders were offended, angry, and often confused. These Jewish religious leaders set traps to discredit him with the people and eventually plotted a murder. But even in the face of these murmurs and questions, Jesus invited participation in his kingdom mission and sent groups of his disciples out on his same mission. This was consistent with what he told the fishermen who had first followed him. Come follow me, he said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Jesus first sent the 12 out to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom and later 72 disciples in pairs with the same assignment. Seek the spiritually receptive, preach the gospel, heal the sick, drive out demons, and announce that God's kingdom had come. In both cases, he was brutally honest about the potential trouble the disciples would face from individuals, religious leaders, and government officials. Their commitment would advance the borders of God's kingdom but could cost them friendships, family relationships, social standing, and even their own lives. As Jesus moved into the third year of his ministry, he began to widen his circle of travel a little further south into Judea and even occasionally into Samaria. That was Gentile territory. He was opposed by Jewish leaders and seen as a potential threat by the Romans. The crowds that followed him were a mixed bag of true believers miracle seekers, and politically frustrated Jews who wanted Jesus to lead revolution against Rome. But as the people began to understand his true intent and the cost to follow, some grew disillusioned and walked away. But Jesus increasingly focused on training his closest disciples, preparing them to carry on the mission after his departure. He steadily revealed his identity as Messiah and his destiny, death on a cross. From the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, the question that had captivated the minds of disciples, the crowds, religious and political leaders alike, was the same. Who is he? Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah was followed quickly by a stern correction of Peter by Jesus when he mistook the sort of Messiah he would be. As those pressures arose and the challenges more unavoidable, Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, a historic center for both pagan rites and emperor worship. It was a place where people made their spiritual allegiance open for all to know. He asked his disciples about the world on the street, who do people say that I am? They gave back the most common take. Jesus was John the Baptist, Elijah, or another prophet who had come back from the dead. 
Jesus then made it pointedly personal. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, spokesman for the group, said, you're the Christ, Messiah, the Son of the living God. They had come to believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that the covenants, the law, and the prophets had been pointing to across the centuries. Jesus immediately prohibited the disciples from telling anyone that he was the Messiah and told them that he would suffer, be finally rejected by the Jewish leaders, killed, and rise from the dead after three days. Like other Jews, the disciples had no category for that vision of Messiah, for victory through defeat. So Peter took Jesus aside, of course he did, and rebuked him for such talk. Jesus pushed back strongly, get behind me, Satan. Jesus heard that voice before, in the Garden of Eden, and again in the wilderness of Judea. It was a serpent whisper that opposed God's plans and offered an alternate agenda. Jesus was not going to entertain a hint of that thought. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. About a week later, the transfiguration of Jesus revealed his glory to his inner circle of apostles and confirmed him as the pinnacle of God's redemptive plan. Jesus took his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to a high mountain. There while praying, his face and clothing became blindingly radiant with light as Jesus revealed to him his full glory and majesty as the Son of Man and Son of God. At the same time, they saw Moses representing the law of God and Elijah representing the prophets with him. Peter, who apparently talked when he was terrified, suggested that the disciples make three tents one each for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And at that exact moment, a cloud surrounded them, enveloped them, and the disciples heard a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter hushed, and in terror, the three fishermen collapsed prostrate on the ground. When the cloud cleared and they looked up, only Jesus remained. Jesus was not a figure equal to Moses and Elijah. He was the fulfillment of everything they had said and everything they had done. Around the time of his transfiguration, Jesus purposely set his face or resolved or determined to go to Jerusalem to engage what one group of authors calls the final confrontation between the kingdom of God and the powers of darkness, which lie behind Jewish opposition to the kingdom. Jesus introduced his disciples to life in the way of the cross because following him would be costly and demand sacrifice. The closer Jesus came to his own cross, the more clear he made the demands of following him. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it.